Welcome, everybody, to the Lanky Guys. We have begun a new year today. This is, by the way, the Word on the Hill podcast. My name is Scott Powell. <laughs> and I'm Father Peter Muffet. <laughs> we have too many names. You know, you know how many names I have, don't you? You mean personally? Yeah. Uh, three. Um, well, I mean, yeah, but more than that. I mean, everybody needs more names than just three. Father Peter, the yeah. Mus, Peter Big Hair. Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about like real Bob. names. Like, oh. no, no, like, you know, like Peter Michael Thomas Baptiste Daly Sixtus Anthony Mossett. <laughs> that's that's my full name. Wait, what are all those ones in the middle? Those are the ones. There's that a confirmation I, name in there. Yeah, yeah. Thomas. I was named. Yeah. I was named after Saint Thomas Aquinas because okay. what up? Really He's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that. And look at where you are. I know. Well, well some, somewhere I, in upstate New York at the moment. But <laughs> so. No, no. I'm in Springfield, Illinois. I'm not in New York. You're in Springfield, Illinois. What are you doing there? Uh, my sister and her seven kids are here and they her husband. It's awesome. Oh, I didn't know that they lived in Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, it's super cool. And um, I know uh, virtually nothing about Springfield, Illinois. Uh, right now, I am in my sister. My sister has seven children, and she also has an exchange student named Yi Chen from nice. uh, from Shanghai. And I'm in Yi Chen's room. Nice. Is it a nice room, or did they it, give her kind of the bottom of the barrel? No, no, no. They, he got the best room, and it's up top in the house because there are so many children here. It's really hard to find a place that's not <laughs> um, having some sort of activity in it. Wow, that's awesome! I exiled my entire family, who are all in town for Thanksgiving, but they were all exiled from the home. That's that's the only way to do it. That's like because it's a lot of people. It's a lot of I'm, people, and it's a lot of podcasting. How how many people are in your house? Not that many. Um, at the moment, well, let's see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven of them, but four of them are usually here. Oh, okay. So yeah. <laughs> tomorrow there'll be lots more. Yeah, there's like 11 here right now, including myself. See, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's it's hard to find a place that's quiet and that doesn't have some sort of Legos or some <laughs> sort of territorial <laughs> fight over a chair. I hear that. We only have two kids and we have the same problems. I can only imagine what it would be like with seven. Yeah, my sister, oh, she's pretty dynamic. She she knows how to handle herself, I have to say. Good for her. The Mussets, man, they know how to hang. They sure do. All right, so here's there's two things we have to address. Number one, we yes. are in a new liturgical year, like you mentioned. Hallelujah. We're, we're in A. We're starting back over from the beginning. And number two, this is officially the one-year anniversary of the podcast. Hallelujah. Oh. Dude, I'm so excited that, we, that we've we've managed to do 52 of these. Can you believe that? No, and I realize this is actually pretty much to the date. Um, when we recorded the last one, the last one, the first one, the first one was somewhere around December first, which is about when this will air. Dude, so take that, internets. Who yeah. thought we couldn't do it? <laughs> you can't hold us down. We're too lanky. You can't hold us. Down. <laughs> we'll just we'll just wiggle right out. <laughs> Father Peter's getting sick. I am. It's uh, I. I got here and they were like, my sister's like, full disclosure, she was texting me on the mm-hmm. way in and she's like, full oh. disclosure, we've got like two kids down with the flu, it's terrible. Oh, on the way in. <laughs> oh, I know. And and so uh, right now the only ones that are holding on are uh, my sister, Yi Chen, yeah. and yeah. Uh, the youngest girl, Gianna. Everybody else has gotten it. Everybody else has gotten it. Same here. We We've all gone through it like twice. Because we have less kids, less family, so we just go it through more. Oh, times, yeah, yeah. Which is awful. Well, dude, let's get into this, man. We got a bit one year, and one year it's, uh, it's time. So can we just say something about the liturgical years? I would love all, to. Before we dive in. Because I love the schema of how the church sets up the liturgical years. Do you know this whole deal? No, I, I'm not, I, I have a little bit of a sense, but I, not very well. So here's the idea. I learned this from Tim Gray, I think who I'm trusting knew the truth. <laughs> so I hope this is how the church really does it. But um, so, you know, in, in each liturgical year, so the way that we have the Bible set up, you yeah. know, start, well, I'm sorry, the gospels at least. So the gospels, the way they're set up is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Yeah. Which are, they're set up that way, not because it's a chronological thing. It's actually probably not the right chronology. But the, the reason we actually have that set up is because that's the way they're actually read in the liturgical cycles. 
So we read Matthew is first in the Bible because we read Matthew in year A. Mark is second because we read it in year B. And then Luke in year C. And John is kind of the wild card that we read during special seasons and stuff. But the reason we do it that way, so Matthew is the one we start. So um, it's actually believed, so there's been disputes over this in modern years, but the ancients all believe that Matthew was the first gospel. A bunch of, a bunch of scholars around a couple hundred years ago started making the claim that Mark was the first one, um, which we can get into later. I disagree with that. I think Matthew was actually the first. Yeah. And the reason we think that it was the first, number one, all the fathers of the church said it was the first, which is usually a pretty good standard. But the other thing is that we actually have more copies of the Gospel of Matthew than we do of all the other Gospels. Really? Which means that it was the most passed around. So it was the most copied, the most, um, you know, re-recorded, and then given to other people. Because it was believed that Matthew was the catechetical Gospel. Because if you read through Matthew, it actually has more of the content about what Jesus teaches than any of the other Gospels do. Like Mark, for example, always says stuff like, as Jesus was teaching... A, a demon came and slapped him upside the head. So, you know, something something like that. But it never yeah. actually tells you what he's teaching. Matthew gives you all the content. It gives you actually what he taught about, which the others don't. So it's actually got the most information. So for that reason, it was believed to be it was believed to be the first, but it was believed to be the catechizing gospel. This is where you start. It's 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 plan A, right? So you learn all the stuff. So we read that in year A because it's the starting point of the Christian faith. Wow. Then we go to your B. So your B is Mark. And Mark, like I said, it's got a different tone. It's the shortest of the Gospels. It's the most, Tim Gray always called it the Hollywood Gospel because it's just kind of action-packed. <laughs> There's always these, you know, these car chases and shooting people. But if you do read it carefully, it's it's all about, it's all about, um, it's all action. So, I mean, the first thing Jesus does, you can learn a lot about the Gospels and what the writers want you to take home yeah. uh, by the first public thing that Jesus does. So the first public thing he does in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first kind of public moment. Yeah. The first public thing he does in Mark, do you know what it is? I, he does it immediately. That's what I know. <laughs> oh, the word immediately appears 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, which is crazy. The yeah, NAB, I mean, unfortunately, takes a bunch of them out to make it sound smoother. But Mark wants it to sound annoyingly fast. Yeah, it's like immediately, immediately, immediately. That's true. But that's but also you know the first thing that according happens? to the people that he's writing to. So I don't know what it starts, though, in Mark. Uh, it's a it's quick question exorcism. to me. What? It's an exorcism. Oh. So it's Jesus casting out demons. So again, if, if the gospel writers are trying to set a tone, Matthew yeah. does it by the Sermon on the Mount teaching. Mark does it by casting out demons, which, again, tells you something about what he wants you to be thinking about. So basically the, the call of Mark is once you've learned about Jesus, now you actually have to do something about it. You're going to be engaged in a battle. You're going to be fighting. You're going to be running. You're going to be moving immediately. It is total action because the call of discipleship means getting up off your seat and actually doing something, right? Yeah. So that's why it appears second. And then lastly comes Luke, and Luke, Luke actually more than the other Gospels emphasizes mercy and, and God's forgiveness. It actually has Mary appear more than the other Gospels. She appears more times than Luke. Um, because the idea is once you learn about who Jesus is in Matthew, once we are challenged to do something about it in Mark, we're basically going to blow it. We're going to fall inevitably. So we need to be picked up and reminded of God's mercy by Luke. And that's and, the scheme. And his sacrifice. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because exactly. Luke is super about the priesthood. He is. And what is one of the, f the the primary functions of the priesthood? It's forgiveness of sins. Or it's the conduit. God forgives sins, but it's through the priest. Old covenant and new, new covenant. And then awesome. once you relearn the mercy of God, you start again with Matthew, and you relearn everything. You're re-challenged by it, and you're re-comforted. Anyway, so that's a, I, I think it's fascinating the way that these are kind of set up. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you have John in the middle of it, which is he's trying to really make sure that we're um, understanding the uh, sacrifice and the passion. And we read him in the high holidays and really are going for it in that supplemental action. Yeah. And John kind of assumes that you already know the rest. Yes. So he's going to take it to the next level and kind of give you a whole different perspective on it. So Bing anyway, bong. that's that. Bing bong. Oh, we forgot to do shout outs. By the way, do you have any shout outs? Um, shouts? I, you know what? I haven't looked at my email at all just because, <laughs> come on, it's, I'm on vacation. <laughs> no, you're on vacation. Um, we, um, I, I would like to give a shout out to Riley, uh, Riley Petrie, who actually wants to give a shout out to her husband, Jason. They listen to their, to our show every week and they have three small children. And so they can never quite catch everything, anything during the homily, which I, again, I totally understand mm. <laughs> and it ebbs and flows. So, I mean, hopefully we can be of some help, um, Oh, so we listen to the link you guys later in the week, and then we try to connect with the Sunday readings. That's fun. Oh, and he also, she also, Riley gives a hello to Father Peter, who taught totus to us 
um, a while back. You guys are our fellow UNC grads. Whoop, whoop. You know I Ryan? remember Riley. Oh, nice. Even if you didn't remember her, you would have to say you do because she said you know, <laughs> she knew you. Dude, no, I'm sure I that you do. do. I'm sure that you do, but you would still have to say. That. Yeah, I will. I give a shout out to my sister who um, I realized that I have not told that I podcast, which is a shame <laughs> on Surprise. me. I was like, I have to go podcast. Which, by the way, I like. I got set up yesterday, like an entire day before when we were supposed to do it, and then I got up set a, an hour today before we were supposed to do it. Like I have no idea what time it is. It's just no, like carefree timelessness going on right now at my sister's house. But <laughs> so I want to get a shout out my sister Amy, and then um, her kids Sam, Gabe, Luca, Bonansinga. I mean, sorry, Sam, Gabe, Luca, Sophia, Micah, Gianna, and Joseph Peter. Cause, and Joe, her husband, because they're totally all awesome. Nice work getting those all out. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's difficult. It's kind of like knowing my own name. I, I can't even say that one long. Or your 15 names, as you pointed out before. Ah. Ah. Um, also, I, okay, I have to clear the air about one thing. Okay. Um, we got a – did you hear about this? We got a big shout-out on a website called catholicmom.com. Dude, that was did awesome. That? that was a sweet shout-out. It was a great shout out. So thanks to Sarah Reinhardt, but I, she she noted that I was a self-proclaimed scripture genius, and I'm not entirely sure where I proclaimed myself a scripture genius. No, you, you know what it is? <laughs> it sounds is, really big. It's in the description on the website itself that I wrote for you. Okay, so you declared me a scripture genius. I, I did. You didn't declare genius. it yourself. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, there you go. So check out CatholicMom.com. That was a really great. It was a really good review too. Somebody asked me, Megan Dillon asked me to write um, a, a brief description of our podcast or something. And I actually, the first thing I did was go to her review of us to see if she said <laughs> how, how she described it. Because <laughs> it's a really hard thing to describe when you're in the middle of it sometimes. Yeah, we so. need to do like a podcast personality test. Uh, I, that would be a fun thing. That's going to be a podcast, a podcast in and of itself. personality test? Yeah, it'd what be it? called Podcast Personality Test, and it'd be a podcast of its own to where you review other podcasts' personalities and describe them for them. Whoa, that's fascinating. It kind of blew my mind. Hey, you know, I'm good for those sorts of things. You are. All right, let's get in to it. Okay. Um, so we are in Isaiah. first Sunday. It's New Year's, New Year's Day. Happy New so, Year! Beef turkey time! What? Beef jerky time. Oh, beef jerky. Turkey time is, is what I thought you said, because we are recording this the day before Thanksgiving, which is probably, we should have explained, that's why there's family everywhere around us. But oh, anyway. yeah. That's um, so we're starting with, yeah, that's it. So we're starting with Isaiah. Oh, we're also doing it at a distance. So if there's ever kind of a lag time when we're interrupting each other, it's because Father Peter's in Illinois, and I am at my dining room table in Colorado. <laughs> so uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is our first reading. Then we are still with Psalm 122, which is the same one we had last week. So we can just recycle what I said last time, and that'll <laughs> be good. Uh, Psalm 122, verses 1 through 2, 3 through 4, 5 through 6, 4 through 5, 5 6 through 7, 8 through 9. Couldn't it just say 1 through 9? Yeah, I think that they That's take out pieces, <laughs> though. But it doesn't – well, whatever. All right, so Psalm 122. Uh, then we're in Romans chapter 13. And which is very Gauss. strange, I have to say. The actual reading or the fact that we're reading from that? Or that we're reading from that. I'm, I was kind of like, hmm, okay. Well, that's all about orgies and drunkenness and not to do that. So, yeah, that's, there you go. That's a good point. Just Welcome to Christmas season. <laughs> well, yeah, anyway. Okay. <laughs> Matthew. <laughs> then the gospel is from Matthew 24, verses 37 through 44. And there you go. There you have it. This is how we roll. Let's jump in. So, Let's um, do it. I uh, I like the fact that we're starting in Isaiah, the prophet of total awesomeness. Isaiah had like the best view of the entire universe that I've ever seen, really. Yeah, he did. He had a tough he had a tough lot though. He had a tough life, but he um, he got it all. I mean, like the the guy had the foreshadowing going. If anybody should have hope, he sees destruction and hope and fulfillment and what is to come in a way that really nobody else did. He's kind of a baller. I like him. He is. So Isaiah, um, I think Isaiah, so I've actually been a little frustrated by Isaiah this week because I've been trying to, so I, back when I taught at the Catholic Biblical School, I taught Isaiah one year and Isaiah is so stinking hard to understand. I mean, we've, 
it's been said that Isaiah is the fifth gospel because it has all these references to Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. But yeah. if you just want to read or teach or learn the book straight through, it's so stinking hard because yeah. he actually bounces around. There's all these these flashbacks and flash forwards and flash sidewayses and it's, it's kind it's of like all lost over the map. <laughs> it is like lost. Oh my gosh, it's totally like lost. <laughs> wow, that's totally what it is. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Oh, I wish. That I knew that when I was teaching it. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, um, <laughs> I have to say something about Isaiah, though. So there, the common consensus among academics and scholars in the world uh, is that Isaiah was actually written by three different people. So there's, yeah, there's, you know, there's proto-Isaiah, there's deutero-Isaiah, and there's trito-Isaiah, which sounds really fancy if you're trying to get tenure, so that's why they talk like that. But um, <laughs> the much <laughs> the much more minority view is that Isaiah actually wrote Isaiah, which is frankly where I stand because I'm not I'm not compelled by all the arguments that it must have been a different person um, I'm not I don't consider myself a fundamentalist you know that I, I I don't agree with any new scholarship and if it's new it's terrible blah 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 I'm just not compelled I mean it, it, the book is called Isaiah the ancients all believed it was written by a guy named Isaiah uh, and I'm not compelled by any of the arguments that because some of the grammar is slightly different in the end part than it is in the beginning part, that it must have been written by a different guy. I think it was actually this prophet who God sent to actually witness to all of the things that took place over this massive period of time through the spans of different kings who actually witnessed and spoke to what the Lord was doing. And I think it's actually very powerful to read it that way. So anyway, take that for what you will. Do you disagree with me? I don't disagree with you. I am always of the opinion when I'm looking at something that it's going to be from the author. I, I, I don't like to get into the, um, I don't like to sit there and try to understand something in its divided parts. I want to understand something in its whole first. And then if we can go and look at the parts and say, okay, well, how do the parts fit together? But always with a view towards meaning and not with a view towards, okay, hold on. How can I get, um, how can I, I divide this up and, and to try to understand just because you, you fall into such a risk if you want to, um, look at something and say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and I, I know that this is really just these extra parts here. I, I, I'm close to academic, but I'm not really that. I, so I think that the, the disposition you always should start off with is to say, this is whole, how do I understand it as a whole? One thing I have to say about this, because I am entrenched in the world of academia. Um, you for are. For better or for worse. Um, so I understand all the arguments, and I'm, I'm yeah, I'm going to be a weird minority. But here's the thing. There actually is a movement in academics. If you don't care about academics, you can shut the podcast off for two minutes and come back to us. But here's the thing. There has been this long school of thought. Stop it. Stop that right now. There's been this long school of thought since the 1800s. Actually, um, Friedrich Schleiermacher is the one who started it. Oh, Friedrich. Um, anyway, that, that doesn't matter. Um, th this idea of reading behind the text and this sort of presupposition that, okay, whatever we have here, there was all these different people with agendas and with all these baggage who kind of put this together. And so what we have to do in reading the Bible is try to find out all the stuff that's behind the text and all the things that kind of went into it and all the different people and their little agendas and all the, all the stuff, right? It's the yeah. whole JEDP kind of thing, which I don't want to get into any of that stuff. If you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. But there actually is a movement in academics. Um, unfortunately, the Catholics are always one step behind. Um, but true. there's a school in like secular thought that basically says, I mean, I'm talking about the folks at like Yale and Oxford. And what they're saying is, okay, for about, you know, 100 or so years, 100, 200 years, we've been working under this presupposition that there's all these different sources that went into creating these documents that we have. Yeah. And quite frankly, we've never discovered a single one of those original sources. They simply don't exist. If they're out there, fine, but we've never found them. So the scientific method says you create a theory and then you test it. And if it, if it works, great. If it fails, you find a new theory to test, right? Yeah. So they basically said, look, we've never found any of these documents, any of these, these other people who have contributed. We've never found this Q source and mark, you know, all this stuff. So whether it's there or not, let's actually read the text as the text. And they're not doing this from like a Christian or a Catholic point of view. I mean, these are secular academics that are basically just trying to be honest and say, look, there was a group of people that actually received this writing as this writing. We should actually try to read it how they read it, which um, I think is the, the best thing that could be happening in academics because that's, I mean, quite frankly, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to put these things back in context and imagine that we were the original readers. What would we be thinking? What are they, What's going on in their world and in their minds? Um, which is such a more interesting, whether you believe 
in the inspiration of this stuff or not, or whether you're just a secular academic, it's just a more interesting way to read this because then you can actually enter into a story and enter into a culture and it's just more fun. And I, I think for a long time, seminaries have unfortunately just taught all of this source criticism to the detriment of actually looking at what the text says, because you guys have to preach on this stuff every single day. Every and, uh, day. Every day. Every, every day, people. Every day I write the book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's songs. a really it's a really fun thing to go through it with you, actually. I, I learn a ton, just like everybody else in the listening audience. Whoa, we're already pretty far into the podcast. We haven't started talking about the reading. Sorry, I got on two soapboxes already today. So That's okay. That. You're a lot taller for it. All right, it's it's mainly because I don't have that much to say about Isaiah, so I've got to say something. Um, no, so Isaiah, okay, well, I mean, what's going on in Isaiah? Ba- basically the gist of Isaiah, because this is the very beginning of the book. Isaiah is writing during um, the period that kind of marked the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. So remember, after the kingdom has split, the north has gone up north, the south is still in the south. The nation of Assyria is about to come in and, and basically wipe out the south. Um, Isaiah is writing to the south, to Judah, to Jerusalem, in the time of the expansion of the Assyrian Empire and kind of watching all these things that are happening. But he also contains this warning that even though they're going to be spared from the hands of the Assyrians, if they don't clean up their act, if they don't kind of turn back to God and to the covenant, then another nation is going to come. Babylon is going to show up as well, and they're going to finish the job that Assyria started, basically. Yeah. Are you are you praying your bravery or something? No, Sorry, no. Sorry, just so you make the sign of the cross. Or, or maybe that was just a very holy thing that you were doing. I was actually trying to cast out the demons from Skype is really the truth of it. Because as soon as we started getting into this, you started breaking up. It's the hilarious thing. That is hilarious. Well, it's sad and hilarious. Yeah. Um, I have to do that that to our sound system at the church all the time. Oh, I believe it, man. I believe it. But anyway, that's that's what's kind of going on in Isaiah. Um, Part of the reason that people don't think he actually could have been legitimate or or it could have been the same guy is that Uh he's so accurate about what's going to happen later before it actually happens that there is actually this idea of prophecy that he can actually, that God can actually reveal things that are going to happen. Certainly that can't be. So somebody else must have gone and written it later on. That's kind of the other academic presupposition because it's really specific about what is going to happen in the future, which hasn't happened yet. And well, and first Peter takes that up and says, you know what, like this is not a cleverly concocted myth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. As most people, uh, well, as a lot of people think it is. Yeah. They put it in Costco. I saw a news article that they put it in the fairy tale section the other day, the Bible. I saw they labeled it as fiction. Did they put it in the fairy tale section? Yeah, it was right next to the fairy tales, which is like, it hurts so bad, man. Welcome to Costco. Welcome to the world. Yeah, no kidding. Costco, well, never mind. Okay, so that brings us to what we're talking about now. And again, the the, the order of this book is just kind of weird. But in chapter two, where our first reading is, um, it's looking forward. It, it, it's basically, again, I mean, much of Isaiah is written in a really dark time in Israel's history, looking forward to what is to come. It's looking forward, in one hand, to the coming punishment if they don't clean up their act. But on the other hand, it's looking forward to, okay, after that punishment comes, because you are going to fall into sin, we are going to break the covenant, and after we are punished for that justly, God is actually going to start something new. And so here at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 2, there's this image of the mountain of the Lord, of, of, of this new Zion with people streaming to it and Jewish people and non-Jewish people and Gentiles. And, you know, most commentators, most, most of the Christian saints and people who look back see that this, this passage is really describing the, uh, the coming of Christ um, when that's this new covenant, this new reality is going to be inaugurated when Christ comes. He's going to be this new Zion, this new mountain that all people are going to flock to. They're going to beat their plowshares uh, in, in, in their spears and their pruning hooks and all this stuff. I like it. Um, yeah... Yeah, just I'm looking at this again. It was actually a couple days ago that I looked at this. Now I have to revisit it. There is good news, but even in this, there's good news and bad news. In every one of these readings, there's kind of the good news and there's the bad news. And so just going on what this says, it says, this is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days to come. So it's telling you, okay, this is the future. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as its highest mountain and raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream toward it. What's the mountain of the Lord's house? Well, first of all, what's the Lord's house? 
Well, the, the Lord's house is the temple, of course. We yeah. have, you know, the Holy of Holies, I mean, all, and yeah. all of the kind of new cosmos. But then you have Mount Zion, which, by the way, I've been to Jerusalem, and that's not the tallest mountain around. You can sit on the Mount of Olives, and you, like, look at that, and you're like, this is not the tallest mountain. What's going on? I've, I've always tried to understand but, that in relationship to Isaiah. Was that what Isaiah is talking about, though? He says, this is what is to come. That in the day the the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest mountain. So, so what are is you the mountain saying of that the Lord's the Mount house? Zion is actually like a a, a tall short person, <laughs> a lanky guy would, if you will. <laughs> oh. no. no, I'm saying that the the mountain has changed, and it's actually not Zion anymore. Now it's Calvary, because the mountain of the Lord's house is no longer going to be this this brick and mortar structure that's actually going to be wiped out pretty soon. It's going to be the Mount of the Cross where the new temple, Jesus Christ stands above the rest. So there's a new Mount Zion, I think is the idea, which it, even Calvary might not be physically higher than the rest, but it's going to be spiritually higher. And it's where maybe are that's, all nations streaming? that's why we but, always put the cross on steeples and try to make it the tallest thing in towns. I think that's exactly why we do that, or at least why we should be doing that. Yeah, it's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. The skyscrapers beat us out a, little, a couple of times, especially in downtown Denver with Holy Ghost. Just put some crosses up there. Stick them up there, man. <laughs> call, call them a cell phone tower. Um, so all the nations are going to... And you know that has to be the case because all the nations actually never stream to the temple. That was the intention from the beginning, but it, it never really happened. The nations didn't really stream. I mean, some some there was some smattering of it, but the nations never streamed toward the temple. The nations do stream toward the cross, though. And so something has happened. Something has totally changed. Um, but then there's a, there's a twist, and then the second part of the reading, it says, For from Zion, the new Zion, that is, shall go forth instruction, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and impose terms on many peoples. They will beat their, plow, their swords in the plowshares and the spears in the pruning hooks. One nation shall not ri- raise the sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. The house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So in other words, he's going to actually give instruction to the people. He's basically going to lay the smack down, and the wars will end because <laughs> there is a mighty warrior who is going to end all of it. Um, why? Because there's actually going to be a battle that does take place once and for all. What's the battle? Well, the battle actually takes place in Jesus' own body on the cross. And that once-for-all battle is going to be the battle to end all battles. Um, so once that happens, everything else is done. And even if we have, you know, little wars here and there, I mean, they, they're, 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 they're needless, so to speak, because Christ has actually done it. Well, I'm trying to think for just for a second. You made a connection in my mind. I mean, like, having to offer sacrifice in the temple is kind of conflictual. I mean, think about this. You're you're working, you're in an agrarian society, so you have all of these agricultural realities that you're trying to act, to do, that you're offering to the Lord. Now, and of course, it's, it's the, the um, city, of course, has been built out, and there's greater trade than just a, a, an agricultural society. But the little conflict of saying, oh, God, I, gosh, I have to give this up. I have to continually give this. What are you laughing me about? Nothing. Keep going. Okay. That that uh, that's tough. I mean, I, I I always have a little bit of a conflict inside when I have to give something away, and it's actually it's a good yeah. conflict. It's it's an emptying of myself where um, I actually have to oppose the selfishness that's in my heart, which is which is real and it, it's conflictual, and I have to go out, and that's where the the kenosis, the the self emptying of Christ, is actually super profound because it it actually is finally waging a a, a last battle. Um, of which we can participate in now to to uh, get rid of ourselves of this um, constant um, uh, st- uh, 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 struggle for uh, against selfishness and obedience and and uh, mm-hmm. a living for a true end versus an earthly end and, and I just never thought of the the temple and the, its sacrifices as as conflictual until I until I've actually looking at at, at the war of the passion that's really beautiful thank you. Yeah, and it's um, keep that in the back of your your little hat because it's going to come back in the Gospels. I think in a kind of a surprising way. Yeah, because my need my to have Isaiah in the back. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah, my, my my beanie is on and warm, so it's it's working out. You look cool. Is that the Cliff Bar beanie? It is my Cliff Bar beanie. I'm looking at Father Peter over Skype. He's freshly shaved. He had a sick mustache for a while, which he shaved off. You look less like a like a 12 year old right now. Maybe oh. it's just the screen. Yeah, you know, I, well, I have some scruff. See, I mean, you can really check oh, out yeah. like, like the look like beautiful an adult scruff again. right there. You look like an adult again. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. 
I'm an adult. <laughs> okay, stop that. Okay. Stop it. I don't like that. All I could <laughs> see was the mustache hairs, the tiny little mustache hairs. <laughs> that Did. was sick. All right, Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Okay, 122. Let's do this. Uh, um, and again, this is this is actually exactly what we had last week. So let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. I rejoice. Let's stream to the Lord's house. And it goes on to say, let us go up to up to uh, up to Zion, right? The mountain of the Lord. Let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. Again, if you're thinking of this in Isaiah's time, you're all you're thinking about is the temple building, and that's fine, and that is a, a legitimate precursor to what is to come. But I mean, here's the thing about the Old Testament that I find fascinating, and I don't mean this. Um, in any kind of way that's that's disparaging toward you know our Jewish brothers and sisters, I don't I don't mean it like that. But I mean if you read the Old Testament, yeah, I I think the Old Testament is designed to make you long for the New Testament because you have this great temple that's supposed to be the house of all the nations, but it never really gets there. It's always yeah. sort of the source of strife and strife and, and uh, national pride and everything else. You have these kings. I mean the be- God promises these great kings, the best king they have is David, who's a good guy, but he eventually falls into adultery and a child out of wedlock and killing a guy. They promise, you know, all of these great things, this nation, um, which ends up being a, a often fought over strip of land in the Middle East, which is not very big and not very prominent, and everybody always kind of kicks them out of it. I mean, all of these things, if, if the Old Testament is the end of the story, it just must leave you depressed. Because is that is that the greatest king we can have? Is that the greatest that faithfulness to the covenant is going to be? Is that the greatest that the temple will be? Is that the greatest land that God promised us? Are these the greatest dynasties? Unless you have Jesus Christ as the king of kings, the new temple, the fulfillment of the prophecies, the covenants, the new land that's given to us being a restoration of the whole of creation, I think it just falls short. So, I mean, you can read this psalm in light of, let us all go up to the house of the Lord, this big building that's up on a mountain in a faraway place. That's beautiful, and that's a, that's a good thing, and there's something beautiful and good and holy about pilgrimage. But if you change that to mean, let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord, which is actually the tabernacle which exists in every single Catholic church, in every part of the world, in every corner of the earth, where every person can have access, physical access at all times, that's something to actually rejoice over. That's something to stream toward, and that is mind-blowingly different than this physical structure that we can make a pilgrimage to. Well, what it does is it takes us out of the scandal of particularity and to the uh, profundity of universality. And that's the thing, though. That's what that's the way God works. God always moves because this is not to, to disparage the Old Testament. God always moves from the particular to the universal. That's the way the Bible works. He starts in Genesis with one human couple and grows them into humanity. And then in Genesis, again, he zeroes in on the person of Abraham and then creates a huge family from him. And the kings create dynasties. And Jesus alone, one single person, God became man, actually creates this church, which will be the universality. I mean, it always moves from the the particular to the universal. So it ought to do that. So should the temple building. So should the kings. So should the person of Jesus Christ. So the scandal of particularity is not necessarily a bad thing. It just can't stay there. Exactly. It's yeah, it's essential. I mean, that's what I and that's what I'm trying to get at when and I'm super happy that you just rattled it off in such an eloquent way. And I was really baiting you to do that. Oh, no, you you said it, though. I just I just reiterate. I just repeat things people say. Okay, (laughs) cool. So that's the psalm. So this is this is a good reason to be singing this. And then that brings us to Romans 13. Romans. Um, brothers and sisters, you know the time is the hour now for you to wake up from sleep, for our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us throw off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies of drunkenness, not in pros- promiscuity and lust, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. I was reading this the other day. I should yeah. pause. I was reading this the other day. And I was thinking that, um, th- I mean, there's a few different ways you can read this. What, what Isaiah told us, first of all, is that what we should be looking for in this series of readings is the coming of the Lord, the coming of the new Zion, the coming of the culmination of all these things, right? Yeah. Which is Jesus Christ. Romans is reminding us that now the time is actually at hand. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Jesus has actually done it on the cross, and we're beginning to experience it. But you can also read this, bu- this uh, section from Romans as sort of a little microcosm of the whole Old Testament. 
Because what is what is what are the people of God doing in the Old Testament? Well, it looks like the the night is advanced, but the day is always at hand. They're always in these works of darkness, looking for the armor of light. They're always conducting themselves in drunkenness and orgies and promiscuity and lust. It's saying, okay, now is the time to put those things off. Now is the time for all of that to end, because what you've been looking for, what you've been hoping for, has actually finally arrived. Um, we still do those things. We still fall into it. The whole context of the Book of Romans is you have this this um, divided church in Roman in in Rome who is caught up in rivalry and jealousy and probably in promiscuity and lust and orgies and drunkenness. You know, other other letters of Paul talk about that. Um, so he's saying, okay, this is inappropriate. You know, one of the things I love about the Book of Romans is that it creates a new argument. The argument in the Old Testament for, I mean, think about this for a second. Okay. Why would you, if somebody were to, and don't, how do I want to say this? If someone were to ask you, why should I stop sinning? What is the kind of typical Christian answer? Not what would you say, but what's the typical Christian answer as to why should I not sin? Because you don't want to go to hell, right? I don't want to be punished. And then it's sort of the Old Testament schema. If you sin, you're going to be punished. There's going to be punishment. Not not just spiritual punishment, not just eternal punishment, but temporal punishment, punishment here and now. Yeah, and you got to offer your cows and your turtle doves and right. uh, your wheat and stuff. Yeah, totally. And that's all true. But in Romans, right before, a couple chapters before he says this, Paul actually gives a new argument. And he gives a new argument for the question, why should I not sin? Because remember, there's that section, I think it's in chapter 6 or 7, where he says, you know, if you think about it, the more we actually sin, the more God's grace is poured out on us. So the more sin we fall into, the more God is going to shower us with grace. And it's sort of this leading question. Yeah, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Exactly. And he sort of uh, presumes the question that's going to jump into your mind, which is, okay, well, if grace abounds more, the more sin there is, why shouldn't we just sin more so we can get more grace, right? Yeah. So he gets to this question, okay, why should we not sin? Do you know Paul's answer for why we should not sin? No. It's basically because, <laughs> sorry, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. Well, no, <laughs> that's I okay. Was, I feel I'm not totally put you. out about it. But again, I mean, the, the, the pat answer, most Christians would say, well, because we don't want to get punished. We don't want to go to hell. Paul says you shouldn't sin because it's not who you are. It's basically you shouldn't sin because it's a lie about your identity. So it's not just because there's punishment. It's not just because there's hell. There's not Those things might be there. But yeah. You shouldn't sin because you're lying about yourself. It's actually not who you were. If you've been baptized into the person of Jesus Christ, you've died to those sins. You've risen again. And every time you sin, you're living a lie about your own identity. So that, in, a, it's in other words, yeah, what you're saying is Christian, become who you are. Uh, yeah, exactly. I was just about to say that. Which <laughs> well, <laughs> brings yes. us back to the beginning of the podcast, baby. It brings us back to the beginning. But that's, um, you know, there's that line that people say all the time, which I hate. You know, when people, whenever somebody does something stupid, <laughs> what's the thing that we usually say? Oh, I, you know, I did that stupid thing. You know, I got drunk the other night or I, I looked at that stuff. But you know what? I'm only human. I'm only human, right? Yeah. Which is one of the biggest lies that you can say because every time we sin, we actually become less human. It's a smack at our humanity. It's actually not, it's the opposite of that. So mm. when we sin, it's because we're stripping ourselves of our humanity in some small way. And we can always re- regain that and restore that through confession and everything else. But that's what Paul's point is. That's not your identity. That's not who you are anymore. That's why you shouldn't sin. Don't focus yeah. on the punishment like we did in the Old Testament. Focus on the fact that you are something different. So you're lying. Wow, that's intense. That's beautiful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I used to listen to the band called The Subhumans when I was in a punk rock phase, and they were less than human, I would say. (laughs) Subhuman, in fact. Ah, sweet. Uh, Well, that leads us right into our gospel. It does. Because, I mean, it's like when um, uh, uh, Matthew is going right at the same core that Paul is going at, and he's like saying... What, what what was that face? Why are you uh, making that face? Tea. My oh, tea okay. got, got cold. <laughs> That's, <awful. laughs> That's horrible. I hate that when it happens. But like he's going at it. He's like, okay, just uh, your salvation is nearer at hand than it was before. Mm. Paul is yeah. saying, you know, as it was in the days of Noah. I mean, sorry, Matthew's saying as it was in the days of Noah. It's going to happen now. It's kind of like um, all of the, the prophecies are here. It's present. This is reality yeah. now. So don't mess around. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab at something here. Um, two things. There's one thing that I think is a given. There's another thing I'm gonna take a stab at. Um, okay. So first of all, uh, the days of Noah. 
Well, okay, let, let's back up. Let's come to Noah a second. So okay. Matthew 24, we have to see the context of this because the context is key. Do you know what the, do you remember what the context of Matthew 24 is? Um what, I what's don't their topic know, of conversation actually. in the entire the entire chapter? What's the topic of conversation? Go back. Do you have your Bible at hand? <laughs> um yes, um and in our church service now, um we are going to go to our thing. I feel like I I feel like you're a Protestant preacher all of a sudden. You know what? I spent a lot of time in the Protestant churches. Yeah, you're like, hey, um, you know, let's go to uh, uh, our pew Bibles. Come on, man. We should have pew Bibles. I'm a, I'm a proponent of pew Bibles. Are you a proponent? So is uh, Father Greg Peterson. He, he actually went and just did it. He got pew Bibles. Did he? I think it would be hard. I think it would be a pain because everyone's going to be, nobody's going to know where they are because Catholics don't know their Bibles. So we're all going to get lost and there's going to be shuffling of pages and Okay, I, I, got, I got Matthew anyway, okay, 24. So, I'm ready. Okay, so how does Matthew 24 begin? Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him that the buildings of the temple. He says, you see all these? Do you not? I tell you, there's not going to be one left here, one stone left upon another, sucker. This not going to be thrown down. Okay, so what's the context of Matthew 24? Destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. So he gives that cryptic line. Remember that scene? They're walking out. They're like, oh, this is really beautiful. He's like, it's all going to be wiped out. And then it says they went to him on the Mount of Olives privately, and they said, tell us, when will this be, and what will be the signs? Mm. When is So you just said all the stones are going to be thrown down from the temple. When is that going to happen, and what should we be looking for? And from that point on, Jesus launches into this diatribe in the rest of chapter 24 about the signs and what to be looking for. That's where people misread Matthew 24. I think it's one of the most misread chapters in the whole Bible because people think that Jesus is talking about the end of the world because he starts talking about stars falling from the sky and nation rising against nation and the moon turning dark and all this different stuff and the days of Noah. And people think, oh, that sounds like end of the world language. And they forget that he actually was asked a question that he's answering. He gives a very long answer. But the whole context of that chapter is about the destruction of the temple. Now, for the Jewish people, the destruction of the temple is sort of a microcosm of what will happen to the rest of the world. Because the temple was a microcosm of the cosmos. So if it happens to the temple, it's going to happen to the, wor to the world. So just as we know the temple passed away to make way for a new and greater temple, Jesus himself, so too eventually this world that we have will pass away, but only to make way for the new heavens and the new earth, a greater uh, view of creation than we have. But that means everything that he says in here is in view of the destruction of the temple. So when Jesus says it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah at the coming of the Son of Man, the days before the flood, and there was eating and drinking and giving and marriage and all this stuff— the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Lord, it's Old Testament prophet language for the day of judgment, the day of the coming. Now, that coming of the Lord is kind of find, find its culmination in uh, Jesus on the cross, which, quite frankly, is the destruction of a whole different temple. So basically, here, here's the thing. If you read through the Gospels, there's two temples. Two temples will be destroyed, and only one temple is going to come back. There will be the physical temple building. It's going to be wiped out. There's going to be Jesus' body, the temple, which is going to be wiped out. One temple will come back from the dead. One temple will not. And so in light of all that, if you read, and so by the way, that, that ties us back into the first reading from Isaiah, because Isaiah talks about all these people streaming to Zion, streaming to the temple of the Lord, but there actually is going to kind of be this moment of judgment on the part of the Lord. He's going to speak. He's going to, there's going to be this battle that's fought and all the plowshares are going to be, all the swords are going to be pushed into plowshares and every, every nation will stop rising against nation. What is Matthew 24 talking about? It's talking about the destruction of Jesus's body, the temple. And it's also pointing to the destruction of the physical temple, which will be done and gone with. But as regards to the, the days of Noah thing, I think it's interesting because this, here's the twist. Um, and here's okay. what I think is kind of new. What happened in the days of Noah? When Noah was given, let me ask you this, and I, I, I'm, this is, I guess, a rhetorical question because I don't know if you know the answer. But what, according to the Jewish uh, believers, the, the the rabbis and the ancients, what was Noah's job? What was Noah's vocation? His vocation you know was salvation of the world. How? Uh, through the ark. So basically, it's no. like the preservation of all species uh, no. through um, uh, pre preserving me. them from the flood. Wrong. Uh, this is my guess. Wrong? No, that's how we think of it. And this is why I bring this up, because that's how we think of Noah. Oh, yeah. his job was to save everybody from the ark. That's actually not, that's not how the Jewish people believed Noah, and that's actually not what the Bible says. Okay, let me it give it a second try then. Okay. His was to reorder the world 
no. properly. So it was to bring no. uh, Cosmos no. out of no, 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 or whatever. No. Um, let me ask you this: How long did it take Noah to build the ark? One hundred and seventy-four years. Wasn't one hundred and twenty? Am I right? I have no idea. I just, I'm just. Oh, it was one hundred and twenty. No, it says it says specifically it was one hundred and twenty years to build the ark. Now, why did God flood the earth to begin with? Um, he because it was uh, totally filled with sin and it, there was no hope for its redemption except for total destruction. Now, why do you think it took 120 years? Do you think it actually would have taken 120 years to build a really big boat? Well, I mean, how big is the boat? I mean, let's be honest. Was, this I, one I'm brother, sure it was man. Pretty big. I'm sure it was pretty big, but that just seems like a really long time. I think he so did it the same reason why he did it for um, Zacchaeus. Sometimes he overlooks our sins so that we may repent. So I, I think that the, the Lord was giving all of the people around Noah a chance to see this dude building an ark saying that everything's going to come and destroy suckers. Why? For what? To what end? Their repentance. Exactly. That's the understanding. And we need to change our minds on what Noah was there for. Because the Bible understands, actually, First Peter talks about this. It says Noah was a prophet of repentance. That was his job. His job really wasn't primarily to build a boat. That was sort of the, the um, that's, well, that's what he did. There was the, it, the was, it was the prophetic action that was supposed to bring about repentance. To call the world to repentance. It took a really, it took 120 stinking years to build the boat so that Noah would have 120 stinking years to call people to repentance. So that God actually didn't have to flood the earth. So that this destruction actually didn't have to come about. Because God wanted repentance more than he did obliteration. Mm. So isn't it interesting then that if we're talking about the days of Noah here in the gospel reading, what year is it when Jesus is saying this? Appro approximately. Ballpark. Uh, th 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 30 Oh, it's right before his crucifixion, remember? It's going to happen within so, about a week or two. Oh, so like 33? It's, so it's about the year 33, right? If yeah. Jesus was actually born in one, which he probably wasn't. Anyway, it's about the year 33, which means how long is it actually going to be until the temple building is actually destroyed? About 40 years. <laughs> it's quick math. Yeah, it's about 40 years. But isn't it interesting, though? So I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Jesus pronounces destruction on this temple. It's coming down because you guys are sinners, and you've corrupted it, and it's going to be destruction. It's going to be like the world is flipping upside down. And okay. then he gives them 40 years to think about that and to turn back and to repent and to actually not have to face that. 40 years, just like in the time of Noah, when Noah said this is going to happen, and they have 20 years to work through that. Now, they don't repent. And the earth is destroyed by a flood. They don't repent of the temple. Some do. Some do and some clear out of town. I mean, this is why Jesus says to all his disciples, you know, and to the people listening to him, when you see wars and rumors of wars and when you see armies on the horizon, when you see all these signs, do you remember what he tells them to do in Matthew 24? When you see these signs happening, what Get does he out of the do? city. To, and go where? To the hills. Head to the hills. So when you see all these things, he says it later on in Matthew 24, when you see all this stuff coming, run to the mountains, head to the hills. That's where we get that saying, head to the hills. Hey, I, um, I, have, to, I have to back up slightly just for yeah, a second yeah. here. All right. Fine. Because Noah, think about this for a second. He, if his charge was to get everybody to repent, they go, the flood comes, everything's destroyed. He gets mm -hmm. out, he's depressed, and he turns to drink. He goes yeah. because he grow, he grows a vineyard and he gets drunk because think about the the the, the sheer intensity the of weight. realizing that they didn't repent and that in fact the, the whole world was destroyed and that his prophetic <laughs> gesture was not successful. Yeah. I think that's a really human way to look at that. But I then also that's exactly why you're looking at St. Paul who says don't get caught in orgies and drunkenness. Oh, good connection. Wow. Nice work. Hey, you know, Ooh, I yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, no, but one thing I was about, that's actually really good. But one thing I was about to say, when Jesus says, you know, when you see all these things coming, run to the hills. Do you know how many Christians were recorded? Uh, how many, According to, to records, do you know how many Christians were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? None. Zero. There's not one record of a Christian who was killed in the destruction. And this was a massive war. This was a huge destruction. Do you know where all the Christians were? Uh, with the Essenes? No, don't make a scene. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, I do, I don't know. No, they were in a place called Pella. Do you know where Pella is? No, but don't they? Just isn't take there a guess. clothing brand that's called Pella? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Take a know. guess at where Pella is. 
Um, Pella is in, I, I have no idea, in the hill it's up country. In the mountains. It's up in the hills. It's in the mountains. So we can read Matthew 24 and think, oh my gosh, this is all about the end of the world and stuff. But everybody living who heard Jesus' words, when they saw all this stuff coming, they all took heed to his words and they left the city and they went to a place called Pella up in the mountains. So however we read it, it was clear to everybody else, oh my gosh, the destruction of the temple is coming. It's time to do what Jesus asked us to do. Because that temple really doesn't matter anymore. That temple is obsolete. Because Jesus isn't giving 40 years for them to rebuild the temple and make the temple something special. The temple is done. It's over and gone. Jesus says this thing is obsolete. He's giving them the opportunity to realize that there is a new temple now to turn to, which many of them do. Many ignore it. Many um, turn their backs like they did in the days of Noah. So it's a little bit different than the days of Noah because many actually recognize the boat this time, which is why the church has all this imagery of being the ship, the boat, in which we are saved on. The bark of, of Peter. People, a lot of people get on the ark this time. So yeah. it's kind of beautiful. And that's where we begin our year. Dude, well, I am, uh, I'm on the boat. <laughs> get on the boat. <laughs> get on the boat. We all wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe you're listening to this on Thanksgiving. Maybe you um, oh, have that's, eaten that's so much uh, tryptophan that you're asleep and you're listening to us, and we just help you woo you. To, that's putting a lot of faith of in my editing skills. Let's say that one more time. You're putting a lot of faith in my editing skills to have this up by, <laughs> by tonight. I know, especially since we're at the longest podcast we've ever done. We're at 52 minutes. I know, this is long. I don't know what to do about that. Dude, it's the new year. What can you do? <laughs> Longer podcasts. That's our <laughs> new year's resolution. <laughs> All right, everybody. Send us an email. Uh, link you guys at thomascenter.org. Um, we have a very special show for you next week. And we will see you then. See you then. God bless you. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado www.thomascenter.org You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org See you next week.